Hello and welcome to the May 17th, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of what's new in Annals. The first article I'll mention reports a study that concluded that screening Black, Hispanic, and Asian Americans for diabetes at lower body mass index thresholds and earlier ages than currently recommended may improve health equity and reduce disparities in rates of diabetes diagnosis in the United States. Diabetes is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality, affecting more than 34 million adults in the U.S. Current U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines recommend that clinicians screen 35 to 70-year-olds with overweight and obesity for diabetes. However, Americans and some racial ethnic minority populations have a higher prevalence of diabetes, even at normal weights, are less likely to be aware of their diagnosis, and are more likely to die of diabetes than white Americans. Researchers from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School used data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey to determine the body mass index threshold for diabetes screening in major racial ethnic minority populations with benefits and harms equivalent to those of the current U.S. Preventive Services Task Force diabetes screening threshold of a BMI greater than 25 kilograms per meter squared for white persons. The authors found that among the 35 to 70-year-old Americans with normal weights, individuals from racial ethnic minorities were at substantially higher risk of diabetes compared with white individuals. 13% of Asian Americans, 10% of Black Americans, 12.2% of Mexican Americans, and 7% of other Hispanic Americans had diabetes compared with 3.5% of white Americans of normal weight. According to the author's analyses, to identify the same proportion of patients with diabetes as white Americans, clinicians would need to screen 35 to 70-year-old Asian Americans starting at a BMI of 20 kilograms per meter squared and Black and Hispanic Americans starting at a BMI of 18.5 kilograms per meter squared. Moreover, among individuals with a BMI of 25 kilograms per meter or greater, there would be more equity if diabetes screening in racial ethnic minority individuals started at younger ages than in white persons. Asian Americans at 23 years, Black Americans at 21 years, and Hispanic Americans at 25 years. Thus, expanding diabetes screening to lower BMIs or younger ages in racial ethnic minority populations may improve equity in timely diabetes diagnosis and consequently also potentially improve patient outcomes. The authors recommend that future studies should examine the long-term health effects and cost-effectiveness of implementing screening thresholds specific to racial and ethnic populations to reduce disparities in diabetes diagnosis and outcomes. It's important to recognize that this study used the social construct of race and the findings should not be interpreted as biological differences. This month's In the Clinic Review focuses on the care of patients after bariatric surgery. Referred to by some as metabolic in bariatric surgery, these interventions encompass several invasive procedures aimed to reduce weight through anatomic physiologic changes that may include decreased absorption of micronutrients and alterations in gut-brain hormones. Primary care clinicians are in an ideal situation to monitor for non-serious complications in the short and long term adjust management of chronic diseases accordingly, and monitor for mental health changes in people who have received this surgery. 
The review covers key issues that primary care physicians and others should be aware of in order to support patients' health in the short and long term after bariatric surgery. Next is an analysis of nationally representative U.S. data that documents the impact of human papillomavirus, or HPV, vaccination efforts that started more than a decade ago. The findings suggest direct protection as well as herd effects from the vaccine. HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. Persistent infection of some HPV types can cause cancer, which may develop years or decades after infection. HPV vaccination aims to prevent these complications. Prevalence monitoring for HPV infection is used to assess the early impact of HPV vaccination programs and can provide measurements of vaccine impact. Prevalence monitoring in the United States is possible through NHANES. HPV testing for female genital HPV was incorporated into NHANES before the HPV vaccination program began. Epidemiologists from CDC analyzed NHANES data to track HPV prevalence in the pre- and post-vaccination eras for both vaccinated and unvaccinated female adults. The authors also analyzed data for male HPV prevalence, but only one four-year data cycle, 2013 to 2016, included male data. The authors found that compared to pre-vaccine years, the overall prevalence of cancer-causing HPV decreased by 85% among females. They report that among vaccinated females, prevalence decreased 90%, and among unvaccinated females, prevalence decreased by 75%. HPV types not targeted by the vaccine did not change during this time period. The authors of an accompanying editorial from Boston University Medical Center suggest that these findings show that vaccine-type HPV infections are not being replaced with other oncogenic HPV infections, contrary to concerns expressed early in the HPV vaccination era. The findings also indicate that the decreases seen in vaccine-type infections are related to vaccination. The authors and editorialists caution that vaccination program disruption during the COVID-19 pandemic could threaten strides made in the previous decade. The editorialists offer four suggestions for improving vaccine uptake post-pandemic. Providers unambiguously stating that a child is due for vaccination at a visit nurses and licensed medical assistants having standing orders to give due vaccines, healthcare systems and professionals implementing reminder and recall programs, and the healthcare systems and clinicians implementing multi-level interventions to improve outcomes for patients. There are concerns about a looming shortage of primary care physicians as older physicians retire, and the next article gives these concerns some credence, at least within internal medicine. Researchers from the American Board of Internal Medicine, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Harvard Medical School studied Medicare fee-for-service claims and American Board of Internal Medicine data for nearly 70,000 general internists certified between 1990 and 2017 to measure changes in practice setting for general internists. They found that there was a large increase from 2008 to 2018 in the percentage of the workforce employed as hospitalists. 25 to 40% of the internist workforce. With a similar growth in physicians who limited their practice to only outpatient settings, from 23 to 38% of internists. 
The two extremes contributed to a big decline in NICS practice where physicians see patients in both the hospital and outpatient settings, and this dropped from 52% to 23%. These data suggest hospitalist-only career choices tend to stick. For example, 86% of hospitalists in 2013 were in the same type of practice five years later. The researchers expressed concern over the trends revealed by the study. Their findings suggest that outpatient primary care physician shortages will accelerate as outpatient-only physicians begin to retire and the ability to shift from hospital to outpatient care by mixed practice physicians diminishes. The COVID-19 pandemic has magnified existing concerns about suboptimal vaccination in underserved populations. The next article provides a detailed blueprint for how academic medical centers can play an important role in increasing access to and uptake of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, especially in Black and Latino communities that have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Boston Medical Center is the largest safety net system in New England. As a safety net hospital, Boston Medical Center cares for patients regardless of their ability to pay or their immigration status. Boston claims both the highest per capita NIH funding and the largest racial gaps in health outcomes in the United States. Boston residents of color are also disproportionately affected during the COVID-19 surges, with Black and Latino persons infected at approximately 1.5 times the rate of white persons. Boston Medical Center's program for vaccination was based on a conceptual framework for community interventions and aimed to increase equitable access to vaccination through community-based sites in churches and community centers, mobile vaccination events, and vaccination on the health center campus. The author's strategies for implementation included communication campaigns featuring trusted messengers, a focus on health equity, established partnerships with community leaders and community health centers, and a strong collaboration with state and local health departments to ensure equitable allocation of the vaccine supply. The authors report that challenges to the implementation of this program include mistrust of the health system given the long history of economic disinvestment in the surrounding community. Authors also believe that potential challenges to implementing similar programs would include the need for a robust operational infrastructure to support the initiative. Multiple hospitals have now conducted experiments of transplanting genetically engineered organs from pigs into humans. Transplanting non-human organs into human patients, xenotransplantation, could bring life-saving therapy to the multitudes of people with end-stage organ disease on transplant waiting lists. Over several decades, organ transplantation has thrived and earned public trust by blending novel science with regulatory infrastructure that promotes quality and transparency. Next is a commentary that explains that this infrastructure does not explicitly apply to xenotransplantation and calls for advocacy efforts to create guidelines and regulations that facilitate xenotransplants transition into hospitals in a way that protects patients and enables the science to advance. Also new are two on being a doctor essays. The first one is authored by a critical care physician who intubated more than 20 patients a day during the April 2020 COVID-19 surge in New York City. He writes about the hope that the vaccine would end the pandemic, realization that the vaccine was only a way out of the pandemic if uptake was very high, and his growing frustration with people who are willfully unvaccinated. 
The second essay reflects on the author's conversation with his dying sister, and Yaw argues that because people generally don't bring on their own diseases through mental weakness or bad behavior, even those who become sick from smoking and other harmful habits don't deserve to be reminded of it when they are dying. Also new is the latest Annals for Hospital summary of key points in recent articles relevant to hospital medicine physicians, the latest episode of the Annals Consult Guide, and the latest Annals on Call podcast. The Consult Guides discuss physical examination techniques that can be useful during telemedicine visits, and the Annals on Call podcast discusses evidence-based care of people with substance use disorder. That's all for this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've mentioned and return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.